0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushtuni Narrated by Shelby Luke
1: Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Russus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture. And the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Chalcedon Report Number 92, April 1973 The failure of statism, whether in ancient Rome or today, usually centers on two areas, religion and economics. The two, moreover, are very closely related. In fact, economics was once taught as a branch of Christian ethics, because sound economics is simply the application of the principle, quote, Thou shalt not steal. Monetary policies and welfare economics have historically been very common means of robbing the middle class and redistributing a nation's wealth and resources. There are two basic premises to a social order, both of which are strongly emphasized in the Bible. First, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4 four Deuteronomy eight three. Food alone cannot satisfy man. Man requires a purpose and a meaning to life, and the absence of meaning renders life impossible. Wordsworth in October of eighteen oh three did not suffer materially, but his hopes in the French Revolution having been destroyed, he could but the rise of Napoleon fill only despair. He wrote in, quote, Poems Dedicated to National Independence and Liberty, unquote, part one, number 22. I find nothing great, nothing is left which I can venerate, so that a doubt almost within me springs of providence such emptiness at length. Seems at the heart of all things I tremble at the sorrow of the time. A year earlier, Wordsworth wrote, 1802, i bid Part 1, number 15, of man's plight in his day as one of perpetual emptiness, unceasing change, no single volume at paramount, no code, no master spirit, no determined road. Wordsworth experienced some of the earliest anguish which ushered in the era of revolutions. We are now deeper in that crisis and despair. Quote, what's there to live for? Unquote. Asked a youth of 20 recently who had tried every kind of experience, felt burned out, and was seriously considering suicide. Time and again, generations of men who have been materially rich have turned on their culture and destroyed it, because it failed to provide them with a reason for living. Second, while man cannot live by bread alone, neither can he live without bread. Man can no more neglect the material necessities of life than he can the religious. Food is basic to life, and economics deals with the necessities and the amenities of life, their supply and demand, and their flow. Men require a sense of security with respect to their ultimate goals, with regard to the meaning of life, and with respect to the economic realm. A man can take a great deal of hardship and difficulty if he feels that what he earns is sure, that his work pays off and that his property is not subject to confiscation by decree or by taxation. To feel insecure in one's possessions is unsettling and destructive. It erodes the value of man's work and purpose. As a result, while inflationary economics brings, for a time, more than a little wealth to the debtor classes, they also bring an unsettling fear of confiscation. Consider, for example... What Orton reported in 1950 concerning Britain, quote, A steeply graduated income tax has long been the backbone of British fiscal policy. The standard rate is now, 1949 through 1950, 45%. On this was superimposed in 1948 and 49. A special tax on investment income, which in effect was and was acknowledged to be a capital levy. On higher income brackets, the total tax ran well over 100% of gross income. A man with wife and two children getting an investment income of $36,000 was liable for a tax of $37,500. A bachelor with $100,000 of such income had to find $130,000. This, of course, meant throwing all kinds of property, land, houses, cottages, farms. Furniture, books, art collections onto a buyer's market. That was done, but it has also meant, as it was intended to mean, the transfer of innumerable personal and private social responsibilities to the state. That was done, too. Now the state has them. The Inland Revenue Commissioners, in their report for the year ended March 31, 1949, officially state that there are only 70 people left in Britain with incomes after taxes of more than $24,000. Quietly, as this result has been accomplished, one would have to look back to the French or Russian revolutions for a comparable precedent, William Allot Orton, The Economic Role of the State, page 101F, Chicago, University of Chicago Press, 1950. After such a confiscation, wealth is still possible, but it is at the sufferance of the state and subject to its confiscation. The modern state is in crisis both religiously and economically, and it has created both crises. Since the French Revolution, the modern state has worked against biblical religion steadily. This has been under the guise of a separation of church and state, a worthy goal But in reality, what has been done is to disestablish Christianity and to establish humanism as the religion of the state. Every state or political order is a religious establishment. All law is enacted morality or procedural thereto, and morality is the relational aspect of religion. The January 22, 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision on abortion, Jane Roe, Et al. v Henry Wade forty one LW forty two thirteen, especially cited as precedent and authority for abortion quote, ancient religion. Unquote. By this it plainly meant not the Old Testament faith, but the religion of Greece and Rome, paganism. The court rendered a religious decision in terms of modern and ancient humanism. The major offensive against biblical faith began with the status takeover of education and its conversion from a biblical to a humanistic orientation. Modern status education is intensely religious, but its religion is humanism and its goal is the conversion of youth to the faith of the state and faith in the humanistic state. The power of the state has been greatly enhanced by the takeover of education. The child was reshaped in terms of status premises and status loyalties and expected to be a ready mortar for the state and its warfare. Nothing has contributed more to the rise of the state and its power than the status school, and nothing is now more destructive to it. Whether in the Soviet Union or the Western world, the product of the state school is increasingly a lawless moral and political anarchist who is as hostile to his country as to God. The result is a growth of lawlessness which the state cannot check. Oscar Newman, in Defensible Space, New York, McMillian, 1972, points out that we are witnessing the breakdown of the social mechanisms which once checked crime and supported police activity because few neighbors share beliefs and values. The sense of community is gone, and also the sense of security in one's own home. As Newman points out, quote, the home and its environs must be felt to be secure or the very fabric of society comes under threat, unquote. In the economic sphere, the policy of theft has led to the progressive decline of economic morale. The attitude is that being economically successful is somehow a sin that must be atoned for by paying off the failures. As a result, the tax structure is designed to redistribute the wealth in terms of this principle. The U.S. foreign aid program, also an application of the same idea, and money has been readily appropriated to the, quote, underdeveloped, unquote, countries as a compensation for their backwardness. In the past year, the same policy has been used by the U.S. in dealing with the European dollar crisis. John Connolly, Peter Peterson, Arthur Burns, and President Nixon have all in various ways attacked the idea of surpluses as immoral. The establishment economist Paul Samuelson stated, quote, even if the dollar should turn out to be somewhat overvalued, this primarily puts the onus on the surplus countries to appreciate their currencies unilaterally, particularly the mark and the yen, or else they should swallow our dollars of deficit without complaining, unquote. The Morgan Guarantee Survey, New York, July 1972. Success and enterprise, in other words, must be punished as somehow immoral. Here is the key. Over and over again, it is insinuated that somehow success, enterprise, and profits are per se immoral. The U.S. Supreme Court cites pagan religion for its authority and status the world over cite a thief's morality to vindicate their principles. Economics cannot escape from moral fundamentals. Either, quote, thou shalt not steal, unquote, is true, or the good society requires that we, quote, steal from those who have in order to equalize society and reward those who have not, unquote. The new religion and morality, with its economics of statism, is the same old sin condemned by Scripture from Moses through St. John. Bewailing the situation will not alter the matter. The answer lies elsewhere. There is no dramatic road to recovery. Only as men change will society change. Irresponsibility today, whether in the various branches of the state, in the church, in society at large, in schools, unions, corporations, and families, stems from the false faiths and values of the individuals involved. We live in a day when a pornographic film has become the, quote, end thing, unquote, to see. And, quote, porno chick, unquote, is common in prominent circles. In late 1972, in a few weeks, a book, The Autobiography of a Prostitute and, quote, Madam, unquote, sold at a record level and was expected to reach 5 million copies by spring 1973 for the U.S. and Canada alone. Very popular also have been two books by a notorious pimp, and pimps have become, quote, heroes, unquote, to many. Men live not by faith today, but by debt and envy, and they look with suspicious eyes on anyone better than themselves. We are told by Plutarch how in ancient Greece the men of Athens banished the honest Aristides. When Aristides, the just, unknown to the man, ask one voter if Aristides had ever done him any injury, the man replied, quote, none at all. Neither know I the man, but I'm tired of hearing him everywhere called the just, Unquote. The mentality today is not too different. Is a man successful? Then he must be a scoundrel, and if not, why should he have more than others? The result is an economic problem, but the cure is not economic, it is moral and religious, and it begins with you. If it does not begin there, then judgment will. The easiest answer in too many eras has been to point the finger at persons and classes and demand, quote, off with their heads, Such people want the world to be good, but they want to be spared the necessity of being good themselves, a schizophrenic position. They want evil to be punished in others, but not in themselves. They see the mote in another man's eye, but not the beam in their own. Matthew 7, 5. But above all else, such people look for a statist answer rather than the personal moral and religious one. If only we can control the state and manipulate people, all will be well, they reason. True order is seen as a man-made order, as some form of humanism. In one of his early writings, Karl Marx summed up the essence of radicalism in religious terms. Quote, To be radical is to grasp things by the root, but for man the root is man himself, the doctrine that man is the supreme being for man. Unquote. T. B. Baltimore, editor, Karl Marx, Early Writings, page 52, New York, McGraw-Hill, 1964. Marx's definition of the radical fits most modern men and almost every state in the world today. Man is the supreme being for modern man. It should not surprise us that the world moves more and more into the jungle of Marx's mind. It begins with the same premise. If man is the supreme being for man, then man makes his own laws as he goes along. As a result, if man says that theft is virtue, then supposedly theft becomes virtue. Our modern economics and our modern established religion, humanism, are alike consequences of making man his own God. But our Lord declared, quote, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Unquote. Matthew 4:10. And God is built in a problem which confronts the humanistic state, and will progressively in the days ahead. Man shall not and cannot long live, by bread alone, and neither can he live without it. The more the state increases its power, the more it undermines both the religious and economic life of man, and its own life as well. Chalcedon Report Number 93, May 1973 Thomas A. Kempis, 1379-1471, to wrote a devotional manual entitled On the Following, or Imitation of Christ, said by some to be, after the Bible, the most widely read book in history. The title sums up the major cultural goal in the history of Western civilization, the attempt to create social order in terms of Christ and Scripture. With the Renaissance, and then with the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, another cultural goal came into existence, the imitation of the non-working rich, royalty, or nobility, The object of envy and imitation became the idle classes, men beyond work, men who could live in contempt of monetary considerations, morality, and law. The rake and the dandy became heroes. They seemed to live a life without reckoning and without a day of economic or religious judgment. The beginning of the era of revolutions did not lead to a proletarianization of culture. Instead, the new classes in power began to imitate the vices of the old aristocracy and to flaunt their contempt of economics and religion as a means of proving that they had arrived. In France, from Louis the Fourteenth on, the court was marked by gambling on a massive scale and sexual immorality. Nineteenth century France saw the new classes imitate royalty, and courtesans triumphed as never before. In Red China, the elite communist catters put the old warlords to shame with their more systematic exploitation of women, their use of power to promote their idle fancies, and their childish and senseless pride. Each new generation of leaders has imitated the older idle rich and have built houses, not in terms of convenience and utility, but as imitation palaces and furnishings stiller prized because they echo the ornate vulgarity of the bourbon styles. The, quote, proletarian art, unquote, of Marxist countries is officially required to imitate the older styles of royal Europe in the name of socialist realism, whereas non-Marxist art despises the same tradition in art because the middle classes borrowed and used it for a time. Modern art strives instead for a new elitism, which is non-utilitarian in a radical sense. In education, the goal on the part of the traditional scholar is the training of gentlemen. Wotonski thus deplores the instrumentalism of American universities where, quote, instead of studying, say, Latin poetry, a student can study urban race relations, an instrumental course that will be of little use to him in the real world, unquote. Peter Wotonski, What Went Wrong with American Education, page 112, New Rochelle, New York, Arlington House, 1973. But of what use is Latin poetry in the real world? Wotanski's idea of a liberal education is hopelessly obsolete. A liberal education is an education in the art of freedom, of being a free man. Liber meaning free. And Wotanski, as an Oxford and Harvard scholar, has a view of freedom which is irrelevant to our world. And, in its own way, almost as worthless as courses in hotel management, the scholar, as a member of the idle clan, a man who is rather than does, is meaningless increasingly. The scholar who does ask to initiate the quote, social relevancy unquote, of agitators, the academic scholar has thus been unable to define himself in our era because he lacks a faith which makes for valid definition. This underscores his increasing irrelevance to the future in any constructive sense. The styles of men and women in the age of aristocracy stressed clothing which made people useless for work. Women emphasized this by their hairstyles, shoes, and fingernails. They were beyond work. The goal of most moderns is the same non-utilitarianism and the same lust for an aristocratic idleness. The hippies have also manifested the same contempt for the world of work. They drop out of study and work. They emphasize handcrafts and aristocratic arts as alone relevant to their cultural goals. Quote, the Puritan work ethic, unquote, as the antithesis of this imitation of the non-working or idle rich, has been especially under attack. In the 1920s, as a boy in Detroit, one of the most remarkable facts was the pride of workers and automobile factories. They urged friends to take the guided tour through, for example, the Ford plant, to see the assembly line. Instead of boredom, there was a delight in the high volume of production and a boastfulness about what their work was doing to change the world. The reason for this attitude was the, quote, Puritan work ethic, unquote. The increasing signs of boredom today mark not only the automobile workers, but white-collar workers, executives, intellectuals, and men in every area of work. The reason is a change of faith, the growth of a delight in idleness rather than work. Increasingly, men no longer live to work, but work in order to be able to play. The playboy dream is to cultivate the appearance of being a member of the idle rich from college days on. The idle rich were a reality, but always a sign of approaching death and collapse. The nobility of France, for example, became idle and useless when Louis XIV required their presence at court and stripped them of power to prevent revolts. As a growing bureaucracy took over, the monarchs themselves became idle and finally irrelevant. Today, because of the proletarianization of the dream of idleness, Men of all classes are determined to make themselves irrelevant and to commit cultural suicide. The hatred of capitalism is largely inspired by the old dream of imitating the nobility and royalty, not in their greatness, but in their decadence. The lifestyle of the future requires, we are told, living in terms of fun and games. We are asked to despise mass production in favor of handcrafts and to love the new morality rather than to obey God. The rich have always been with us, as have the poor. The lines historically have been very sharply drawn. To the horror of the nobility, the Industrial Revolution not only created a new rich class, the industrialists and merchants, but it made good living cheap enough for the middle and lower classes. Capitalism undermined the old aristocracy and dramatically benefited the masses. As Hazlitt notes, quote, Before the Industrial Revolution, the prevailing trades catered almost exclusively to the wants of the well-to-do, but mass production could succeed only by catering to the needs of the masses, Henry Hazlitt, The Conquest of Property, page 54, New Rochelle, New York, Arlington House, 1973. The result was the rapid rise in the standard of living among all peoples in Western Europe. A savage counterattack came from the two major branches of the old aristocracy, the lords and the intellectuals. A series of, quote, investigations, unquote, were launched in England to dredge up every case of capitalistic exploitation in order to build a case against the new class. Since no class is exempt from sin, such examples were found and publicized by both the lords and also by the intellectuals. See F.A. Hayek, Editor, Capitalism and the Historians. The University of Chicago Press, 1954. Socialists and aristocrats made common cause in their hatred of the leveling influence of the free market. Karl Marx, by virtue of being an intellectual, entered the ranks of the aristocracy and married into the nobility. In the Communist Manifesto, he echoed the aristocratic hatred of the Industrial Revolution while admitting its revolutionary impact on the world. Marx charged, quote, The bourgeois, wherever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors and has left no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest, than callous cash payment." The bourgeois had replaced the old aristocracy with its junior members, the intellectuals with the new upper class, the producers, and Marx could not forgive them for that offense. While readily to admit the remarkable effects of industrialism, he took offense at its bypassing of the intellectual. He countered with a Hegelian dream in which the seduced masses, rejoicing in the new affluence, were offered even more affluence if only they followed the intellectuals as their philosopher kings. One point Marx saw clearly power had belonged to the royalty and landed nobility, because in the old order they largely controlled property. This old aristocracy had made room for the intellectual, a Ph.D. had standing as a junior member of the aristocracy, and, if he were a Gauthier or Voltaire, with or without a degree, he was an uncrowned king. That eminence had been shattered. Capitalistic production had created new and cheap property good property, and even landed property was taken over by the middle and lower classes with their new wealth. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx declared, quote, The distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. In this sense, the theory of communism may be summed up in the single sentence. Abolition of private property. Capital is therefore not a personal, it is a social power. once a feudal aristocracy had controlled this social power property. Marx now proposed that a new feudal aristocracy, the dictatorship of the proletariat, the intellectual elite, controlled this social power. The Marxist revolution was the ultimate in counter-revolutionary thinking. It was aimed at undoing the effects of the Industrial Revolution. In a variety of ways, the new left continues in this reactionary, counter-revolutionary tradition. Quote, Detroit, unquote, is a symbol of the hated mass producer. Production has polluted the world. The ecology people hold, ignorant of the greater pollution which preceded the Industrial Revolution, or of the times when the rivers of Europe were dead streams in a way beyond our present knowledge. The goal of the new left is to sabotage the great seducer of the common man, production. Instead of realistic attempts at dealing with pollution, the quote, eco-freaks, unquote, the new leftist exploiters of ecology and conservation, concentrate instead on destroying production. Through legislation and sabotage, production is hampered. Oil shortages are one result. The oil reserves in America alone are enormous, despite the statements to the contrary but drilling is restricted, and new refineries are not built because of restrictions. Offshore drilling has a remarkable record of safety. The Santa Barbara incident had overtones of sabotage. Today, guards are necessary on offshore installations to prevent sabotage by groups who want to create destruction in order to make production anathema. It is the mark of the new leftist aristocracy to despise mass production in the name of the masses to hate an abundance which enables quote, the common man, unquote, to have as much as an intellectual. One well paid university professor climaxed and concluded a long tirade against capitalism by declaring, quote, Do you realize that my plumber makes more money than I do? Unquote. This was the ultimate insult. The free market economy had given a plumber more money than a professor. The professor's contempt of capitalistic materialism had a materialistic ring. In every age, disproportions have existed such as the professor cited, and in every society. They are not corrected by envy and mass suicide. We see also a horror of abundance in the New Left and a desire to destroy abundance. The delight of the New Left in handcrafts is revealing. What they produce is sometimes good, sometimes crude and childish but in either case it has for them in virtue of being a scarce product scarcity is prized and abundance is despised there is a contempt in every area of the common and the abundant for example to have a lovely flower or shrub in one's garden which grows and blooms readily is somehow despised and frowned upon the idea is to coax growth out of something which does not do well in that locale Achievement is not seen as beauty, but as scarcity and exclusiveness. For many, a flower is not beautiful if it is common. In my university days, I heard professors on a few occasions ridicule the Californian's affection for his state flower, the poppy. In those days, tens of thousands of acres were covered with poppies every spring. Since then, cultivation and the extension of farming into new areas has caused the poppy to recede. A student has told me that he has heard professors denounce the destruction of the California poppy by the extension of farming. This is typical. Abundance is despised and scarcity is prized, because only the elite can afford the scarce item. To cite one more example among many, styles reflect the same hatred of that which all men can enjoy and the same lust for their aristocratic. The aristocratic in this definition is not the superior, but rather the exclusive and the scarce. Whether the style is in dress or in a fad, as long as it is the mark of the avant-garde, everybody is ready to imitate and adopt it. The imitation of the idle rich, the jet set, or any other group is a major passion. Is it chick to see a certain pornographic film, to favor homosexuals, or to adopt a style? Then all climb aboard in the bandwagon of liberal and or radical chick, hippy chick, or what have you. However, when it becomes popular, it perishes. Is everybody doing it? Then forget it. The imitation of the following of Christ had as its goal life. The imitation of the ideal of the idle rich, or aristocracy as imagined in the modern era, has as its goal irrelevance. The privileged groups of the monarchist era in France had as their social goals and principles four things. First, they believed in inequality, however much they idolized Rousseau and his gospel of equality. It was an article of faith with them that some men are more equal than others. Second, they believed in the autonomy of the aristocracy. They were exempt, or should be, from the laws which bind common men. Third, they were, quote, different, unquote, and hence not could be included in the body politic in the same way as other men. Fourth, even though they had little power, they regarded the exercise of state power as their natural right. It is this heritage which the intellectuals and the new left, as well as the old left, have largely adopted. It is a policy of studied irrelevance, and its only real power is not to produce, but to destroy. Another factor which has since been added is madness. The extent to which madness is a theme of importance in modern culture is rarely appreciated. Before fraud, the cultivation of new and aristocratic mental illnesses was already prominent. Psychoanalysis became an, quote, end thing, unquote, for a time for the self-styled elite. In fiction, television, and motion pictures, the subject of madness is a common one, and an appealing one to many. Mental illness is, in fact, systematically courted as a liberating process by sensitivity and encounter groups, and industry for a time recently worked to cultivate mental illness as though it offered a way to a higher status and health. This cultivation of mental illness is still a, quote, growth industry, unquote, typical of the new, non-productive growth Quote, Industries unquote, of our time. Jean Church and Conrad D. Corns in The Pit, A Group Encountered Defiled, New York, Outer Bridge and Leonard, 1972, gives us an account of the kinds of depravity cultivated in the attempts to gain leadership and aristocracy through induced madness. An age which despises production and abundance and pursues scarcity idleness and irrelevance will certainly gain all these things and will destroy itself in the process. Scarcity is ahead and irrelevance and death as well. The age of the state, the world of humanistic man, is committing suicide. We will be hurt in that process, but it is also a forerunner of our deliverance. More than ever, we must work to reestablish our roots in the biblical faith and order to establish new schools and institutions to rebuild society. In 1961, in the concluding paragraph of my book, Intellectual Schizophrenia, Culture and Education, I wrote, The end of an age is always a time of turmoil, war, economic catastrophe, cynicism, lawlessness, and distress. But it is also an era of heightened challenge and creativity and of intense vitality and because of the intensification of issues and their worldwide scope never has an era faced a more demanding and exciting crisis this then above all else is the great and glorious era to live in a time of opportunity one requiring fresh and vigorous thinking indeed a glorious time to be alive unquote. more than ever this is true today thank you for joining me this week in the reading of roots of reconstruction John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus.
2: It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice the love he has shown us by his pain that very price it was there at Calvary's dream where he died for to be, tell the world of his wrath, tell the world of his love, tell the world how Jesus Christ has said.